The word of the Lord comes to us today from 2 Samuel chapter 5, starting in verse 6 through the end of chapter 6, as we continue this series through 1 and 2 Samuel. For the public reading of Scripture today, I'm going to read chapter 6. And so I'd invite you to turn there to 2 Samuel 6, uh, which is page 258 in a Bible like this one. And I invite you to stand once more, if you're able, to honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalai Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day and David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said how can the ark of the Lord come to me So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord 
who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, your word to us is a rich gift, and we desire the blessing of your Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to your church today. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. On Monday, August 21st, 2017, I made my way in the afternoon from the office here over to Augustine School to go out to the soccer field and stand there with all the students and faculty of the school so that we could look up into the sky and observe a rare solar eclipse. It was only a partial eclipse here, but I know some of you made your way to western Kentucky or perhaps to middle Tennessee to the path of totality where you were able to observe the moon completely block out the light of the sun in the middle of the day so that it looked like, from what I heard, night in the middle of the day. It's a very rare event. There will be one more on April 8th, 2024. Uh, and you'll have to drive a little bit way to, to get into the path of totality again if you'd like to do that. Go ahead and make plans. Put that on your calendar if you want to. Because you won't have another opportunity after April 8th, 2024 in North America for several decades. It's interesting that the moon can blot out co completely the light of the sun under certain circumstances. It's so interesting because the sun absolutely dwarfs the moon in size. You could fit roughly 64 million moons inside the sun. 64 million of them. And yet, when positioned just right, you can see only the moon and nothing of the sun. Why do you think Paul wrote in Colossians 3 verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth? I think it's because he knows it is entirely possible for us as fallen human beings to allow that which is most important, which dwarfs all else by comparison, to be eclipsed in our view. It is entirely possible that we could miss the supremacy of God and focus all our attention on matters of this earth. And in those moments of eclipse, lose true perspective on reality. And so Paul has to exhort us to work at not doing that. Work at setting your minds on things above. What matters most? God himself, God's kingdom. Last week, we heard a very encouraging message from Psalm 73, where Asaph is wrestling, struggling with the problem of the prosperity of the wicked on earth. And as he focuses on earthly things, he can't make sense of it. But then the turning point of the psalm in verses 16 and 17 says, 
But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. What Asaph told us as we heard the message last week is that coming into the sanctuary of God is an occasion for us to see the reality that's behind that eclipse. It's an occasion to get our perspective calibrated once again to what is real. And in the New Testament context, the sanctuary of God is the gathered church. When we gather together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and thus I believe it should be every Sunday an opportunity for us to gather and to have our perspective recalibrated once more to what is real, to the things that are above, to the things that are greater than the things on earth. Have you been bogged down with the cares of this world lately? Have you been perhaps crazy busy and so, so many things on earth are demanding your constant attention? that perhaps you've lost perspective on what matters most? Or are you facing financial struggles that have left you feeling a sense of anxiety about these earthly things that have occupied your attention? Are you going through an illness or perhaps a chronic condition that has necessitated a lot of attention to your body, but that has pulled your attention away from other things? Or is it the case, is it possible that You really don't want to set your mind on things above because there's a cloud of guilt that hangs over you and you'd rather ignore it than have to face God. Whatever it may be, I pray that the Word of God would lift your gaze this morning to the things of God, to above all the supremacy of God Himself. And as we look at how this text shows us the supremacy of God, I'm going to give three words of instruction uh, that, that are drawn from these stories of David's kingdom. Three words that will guide our thoughts, our minds, our hearts to things above. The first word of instruction is this, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God from chapter 5, verses 6 to 25, basically most all of chapter 5. David was made king over all you have for the rest of the chapter four snapshots of David's kingdom. These are not necessarily chronological stories. These are just the author giving us different snapshots of the kingdom of David as he now rules over a united Israel. And they are snapshots that are meant to make the point that the Lord was with David. And the Lord is who caused David's kingdom to prosper. The first snapshot we see is David's conquest of Jerusalem in verses 6 to 10. In verse 6, we read, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. When you read that reference to the Jebusites and the city that they occupied in the land, your mind should go back to a passage that's much earlier in the Bible in the book of Genesis, where God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, verses 18 to 21. He promised that Abraham's offspring would inherit the land on which he was standing. And uh, God said to him, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, 
the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The Jebusites against whom David is going here. They're listed last in the promise to Abraham. They appear in a string of other passages in the books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Every single time, they're listed last. And it's fitting that they would be because they appear to be the last holdout in the land. Israel came into the land under Joshua, and as you recall, they took the land, and yet they couldn't drive out all the inhabitants. And so here we have a promise made to Abraham that's been hanging for hundreds of years, not completely fulfilled until David the anointed one comes on the scene and is now able to mount an attack against the Jebusites in their fortified city. Now this fortified city called Jebus at the time, later named Jerusalem, this city had great defenses, both natural and man-made. And I don't know exactly what it looked like or how it was laid out, but, but I tend to imagine Helm's Deep, if you've ever read uh, the Tolkien book or seen the movie. Helm's Deep, where the orcs come and attack. It's a fortification nearly impossible to get into. Even to the point that the Jebusites are so confident, they taunt David. They say, look, David, we'll put the blind and the lame on the wall, and you won't be able to get in. And lo and behold, verse 7 tells us, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. It's very short and sweet, but David did it. Now, we don't know exactly how he did it. Verse 8 may indicate that he sent his men up a water channel. Uh, there's a source of water perhaps outside the city, and David was able to exploit the opening to get his men up inside the city. Perhaps that's how he did it. There could have been other tactics, but David somehow was able to breach the city to go in and to capture it, and then he made it his own capital, Jerusalem, or the city of David. It was an ideal location to be capital of the kingdom of Israel. It lay just outside the tribe of Judah, which was David's own tribe, so he could show he's not showing favoritism to his own tribe here. Just outside his territory, technically in the, the territory of Benjamin, but a centrally located city to which both the south and the north in Israel could call their own capital. And here David set up and built the city that would be called by his name. Now, the main point of this first snapshot is communicated to us in verse 10, where the author gives us the theological meaning that is behind it. It says, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. God is blessing the kingdom of David. The second snapshot is in verses 11 and 12. This is where King Hiram of Tyre sends messengers to David and sends um, architects, con uh, builders, supplies, uh, sends all that is needed to build David a palace in Jerusalem. And so David's kingdom now has international recognition from another king, a king up north in Tyre. And according to verse 12, once again, we see the theological meaning of it all. Verse 12 says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So two snapshots of the kingdom, both communicating that the Lord is with David, the Lord is blessing David for the sake of Israel. The third snapshot is in verses 13 to 16. And here we have 
uh, statement about David's family that when he came to Jerusalem, as he was ruling from Jerusalem, he took more concubines and he took more wives. And of course, he had more sons. And 11 sons are named uh, who were born to David in Jerusalem. And the point of this account seems to be twofold. One uh, indication the author is giving us is that David's, David's position is being strengthened. His house is being strengthened. The possibility that his son may rule after him is being strengthened because he's now having a lot of sons. And uh, in the event that there were, was an attempt to overthrow a royal house, it's obviously much harder to, to stamp out a lot of sons than it is just a few. So there's a sense in which David has greater political strength because his family's growing. But there's another sense in which this is a tragic account because David is clearly disobeying the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, uh, which had said of the future king of Israel, he must not acquire many wives for himself. And David appears to be ignoring that text. Now, polygamy in that day, in that setting for a king, was tolerated. It wasn't a big deal. It was a status symbol. So by the standards of, of David's own society, it's a small sin. Just a few chapters over, however, in chapter 11, David is going to commit adultery and then have the husband of the woman he slept with murdered, one of his loyal servants. It appears that we have the groundwork being laid for a bigger disobedience to come. And that's a good warning to us. Don't tolerate the small sins, the so-called small sins in your life. Because if you do, they are just paving the way for bigger sins to come later. Be on guard against all sin. Take a warning from David. It is interesting to me that of all the sections of chapter 5, the name of the Lord is never mentioned in verses 13 to 16. And it appears to be a subtle indication from the author that the Lord did not approve of what David is doing here. The fourth snapshot is in verses 17 to 25, where you have a record of two invasions from the Philistines against David's kingdom. The Philistines apparently had decided after they killed Saul that they were going to step back and let the house of Saul and the house of David fight it out a while. And so for seven years, as that's going on, the Philistines are just sitting back with their popcorn watching. But when they heard that David had consolidated power over all Israel, they decided now is the time to move. We already cut down one of their kings. Let's take the next one. And so they mustered their forces in the valley of Rephaim, which is not far from Jerusalem. David goes to the stronghold, which may have been a reference to the cave of Adullam where he'd hidden out before. It could be another location, but David goes to a place of safety from which he inquired of the Lord. And here we have another contrast between David and Saul. Uh, David is a king who is always dependent on the word of the Lord to guide him when he's going into battle. And so here he inquires of the Lord. The Lord tells him to go up against the Philistines. He meets them out on the field of battle. And again, the account is very short and sweet. David defeats the Philistines. Uh, look at verse 20. David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. David's men are victorious, but then there's another invasion that's related, starting in verse 22, and here the Philistines come up again, 
And again, David inquires of the Lord. You know, you might have assumed David thought, well, we could just learn by experience. What we did last time worked, let's just do it again. But he doesn't do that. He depends more on the word of the Lord than on his own past experience. And so he inquires of the Lord again. And this time, the Lord tells him a different uh, set of instructions. He tells him, go around behind them. Look at verse 24. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for the Lord. Then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. David again obeyed. And David again was victorious in defending his people against the Philistines. So you have these four snapshots, four different pictures of God's blessing on the kingdom of David. Taken together, these pictures or snapshots of the kingdom of David point us to a greater kingdom that is to come, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that would be heralded and established through our Lord Jesus Christ. David as king over an earthly kingdom here points beyond himself to a coming Messiah who would reign over a greater kingdom. David crushed his enemies when he took Jerusalem. He established Jerusalem as his capital, but Christ has crushed the head of the serpent and he has won for us the new Jerusalem. David won international recognition for his kingdom. Christ has claimed cosmic dominion for his. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. David's house grew in Jerusalem in part because of his own sin. Christ, who is without sin, has built a worldwide family of priest kings in his church. David's, uh, David defended his kingdom from an earthly threat with the Philistines. Christ defends us from all the powers and principalities in the heavenly places. David's kingdom was established for a time because God was with him. The kingdom of our Messiah is forever. And what that means for us is that we must live lives that are oriented above all to the kingdom of God. Here's a key diagnostic question I think we should ask ourselves regularly. Where is my hope located? Where do I place hope? What is it that energizes me, that keeps me going, that gives me motivation to go on living? Is it the prospect of advancing my career? Is it the hope of getting married and or having children? Or is it seeing my children become successful one day? Is it getting more money so I can enjoy the things that I've always wanted? Is it being used by God to accomplish great things so that other people will know that I matter? Or is it seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? However th these other things may fall out. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let the stories of David's kingdom and how God blessed him point you to a permanent reality of the kingdom of God when all these other things are no more. The kingdom of God will last. Let us live lives that are devoted first and foremost to that reality. Set your mind on things above, including the kingdom of God that Christ has established and that will come in fullness one day. A second word of instruction is this. Revere the holiness 
of God. Revere the holiness of God in chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. This is the account of David bringing the ark into Jerusalem. The ark has had an interesting story in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, we saw the ark, the, the, the box that represented God's presence with the tabernacle at Shiloh during the high priesthood of Eli. But then it was taken into battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines captured it in chapters 4 through 6. You've got the story of the ark with the, the Philistines taking it temporarily into their custody and then wanting to get rid of it very quickly because God was striking them. So they sent it back to Israel. And once it got back to Israel, it appears to have been marginalized throughout the reign of Saul. Saul is mentioned with Saul a few times, but the ark seems to have been marginalized in the life of Israel. It was not located at a central place where they came to worship. Now, it may have been the case that with David's victory over the Philistines, related in chapter 5, and specifically in verse 21, where it tells us that David and his men carried away the Philistines' idols. They left them out on the battlefield. David's men carried them away, burned them. It may have been that David suspected the Philistines might want to retaliate and come take the ark again. And so it might have been a pure issue of strategy, military strategy, but it also seems to be that David wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem because it is his capital now. And he wants this ark there to represent the reign of God over Israel. He wants to show the house of David is only merely a servant of Yahweh. Yahweh is our king, and I am his servant. And thus it would represent as a central worship place for Israel the nature by which David wishes to rule Israel as Yahweh's servant. So he brings 30,000 men to accompany the ark uh, from the house of Abinadab, where it had been kept, to the city of Jerusalem. And the journey began as they transported the ark. And there was a great celebration as it was moving along toward its destination. And then we have this abrupt account in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. This place would come to be known as Perez Uzzah, or breaking out against Uzzah, the same word in Hebrew that's used earlier to refer to uh, God breaking out against the Philistines. So you have this abrupt story ending this joyful occasion of taking the ark to Jerusalem. And when we read this, it seems very bizarre. Did God overreact, you might say? Did God break out in an unreasonable way against Uzzah on this occasion? I mean, after all, Uzzah was, he had probably long been the caretaker of the ark. he He's driving the cart on which the oxen are pulling it. All he's trying to do is keep it from falling to the ground. And so he reached out his hand to steady it. Why would God do this? Here, I cannot improve upon the words of R.C. Sproul. So I'm just going to read them to you from his book, The Holiness of God. Uzzah's act was an act of arrogance, a sin of presumption. 
Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. The earth is an obedient creature. It does what God tells it to do. It brings forth its yield and its season. It obeys the laws of nature that God has established. When the temperature falls to a certain point, the ground freezes. When water is added to the dust, it becomes mud just as, it is designed, just as God designed it. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason. There is nothing polluted about the ground. God did not want his holy throne touched by that which was contaminated by evil, that which was in rebellion to him, that which by its ungodly revolt had brought the whole creation to ruin and caused the ground and the sky and the waters of the sea to groan together in travail, waiting for the day of redemption. Man. It was man's touch that was forbidden. And that was the presumption that Uzzah made that became fatal. In order to guard his holiness... God had drawn a sharp boundary around that which was holy and to be undefiled by the touch of man. And God, who remains ever true to himself, broke out in a sudden demonstration of wrath against Uzzah for crossing that boundary. And in doing so, God defended the holiness of his name. Now, Uzzah was presumptuous here. David is really the one who is at fault. David's sin appears to be greater because David should have known, or if he knew, he ignored the command God had given in Numbers 4, verse 15, and Numbers 7, verse 9, that when the ark is to be transported, it is to be carried on poles, carried by the Levites. It was designed specifically with that mode of transportation available. And if David had ordered this event rightly from the beginning, Uzzah never would have been in that situation. And so we can lay at the feet the irresponsibility that led to this tragic event. And when it happened, David was angry. David feared the ark at this point. He feared the God that it represented because he thought, if God is going to break out against us any moment, how can I deal with a capricious God like this? How can we ever do this with any kind of trust in him? And so the plan is abandoned. And the ark is taken aside to the home of one Obed-Edom. As David went back to Jerusalem, fearing how can he ever deal with this God. And three months go by. And during those three months, the house of Obed-Edom is blessed and then David gets a report of it. Obed-Edom's crops are producing. Obed-Edom's business is going very well. His family is very healthy. His life is good. And all of a sudden, David realizes, the Lord is good. The Lord wants to bless. The presence of the Lord with us is a good thing. We can trust him. We can have security with him as long as we respect the boundaries that he has drawn. When David realizes that, that God is not capricious, God is not waiting just to zap somebody for no reason. That God is to be feared, yes, but within the boundaries he has drawn, there's freedom, there's joy, there's security. 
David decides, let's go get the ark and let's finish this. And he did it the right way. It's very subtle in the text, but you can clearly see David's repentance if you look at verse 13. And when those who, ha- who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Did you see the difference? The ark is not on a cart anymore because David recognizes this is the obedient way to transport it. And he brings it up into the city of Jerusalem, now respecting the boundaries of God's holiness, revering God who had given those boundaries. We live in a culture that has very little familiarity with the concept of holiness. We do not think of God as transcendent in majesty, as sovereign creator and ruler of all. As Romans 11.36 tells us, the one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. We tend to think of God in American culture today as a supportive friend who comes by when we need him. Or as Michael Horton has put it, the one who comes to play a supporting role in the movie about our own lives. If this story shows us anything, it's that God will not play a supporting role, not even for David. God is always true to himself. And what that means is that we must revere him as holy and respect the boundaries that he has drawn. And so that's my second word of instruction for you on setting your mind on things above, not only on the kingdom of God as your hope, but on the holiness of God as that which we must revere. And then third and finally, live before the face of God. Live before the face of God. In the latter half of chapter 6, you have a story of the end of the procession coming into Jerusalem with the ark. And we have reference here that David was dressed in a linen ephod, which is not characteristic for a king to wear. And David is behaving in a way that's not characteristic for a king to behave. He's dancing and leaping before the Lord in exuberance. And his wife, Michal, saw him from her window on his way into Jerusalem. She saw him acting in such an unkingly way. She saw him from her perspective, bringing reproach upon the royal house. And she despised him in her heart for this. Well, the story goes on. The the ark is brought into Jerusalem, placed at its uh, location inside a tent where David had prepared for it. Uh, All the festivities are going on, and they finally conclude. David blesses the people, distributes a a good portion of food to the people, and then he's going home where he's now going to bless his own family. Before he can get inside the palace, Michal comes out to meet him, to give him a piece of her mind. And in verse 20, we see her very sarcastic comment. David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She's so irate with him for dishonoring, from her perspective, the royal house that she even accuses him of having a sexual motive, of undressing before the female servants that were watching. 
David will have none of this. He responds in verse 21 to 22. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Now we could read this as nothing more than a marital quarrel, but I think the text is telling us there's much more going on here. I think the text is telling us that David is taking an, an important stance against his own wife, an important and necessary one, and he's vindicated in that, as we'll see. As believers, of course, we value a harmonious marriage, and we will work and labor with married couples to achieve that, to fight for that to fight for joy and peace in your home because these are good blessings to which we should aspire. But if Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. And then he goes on to describe households that would be divided from one another because of him. Jesus said that it stands to reason that there are occasions when even a husband and a wife will experience friction between one another because of Christ. Because one spouse is following the Lord and one is not. That's entirely possible. And that does happen. And we have here David modeling how to navigate a situation like that. The spouse who is obeying the Lord must draw a line in the sand and say, I will obey the Lord regardless of what you think of me because the Lord matters to me. His approval matters to me more than your approval does. There are occasions, tragically, but there are occasions when that has to be said and that has to happen. And for David, we see him being vindicated because verse 23 tells us that Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death, implying that this was a curse of God. Now, there are many occasions in the Bible of barren women who were faithful, godly women. But on this occasion, the text is telling us that Michal suffered in this particular way because of her sin. That God vindicated her husband over her in this quarrel that they had. Did you notice that three times in this account she is referred to as Michal, the daughter of Saul? Verse 16, verse 20, and verse 23. Three times. She's not called the, husband, uh, the wife of David. She's called the daughter of Saul. What is the author telling us? You remember, God had told Saul that he was rejecting not only him, but his entire house from the throne. Here's David, who's now king, and he's married to the daughter of Saul. What would have happened if David and Michal had had a son together who became king? The bloodline of Saul would have continued in Israel. God had completely pulled the bloodline of Saul out of the royal family. Michal, the wife of David, has no child, and thus her father's house has no future over Israel at all. 
I think what this text tells us to do is that we must love the approval of God more than we love the approval of others. That's what matters most. Live before the face of God, not before others for their approval. Don't seek the approval of a world that hates God. Don't crave popularity with a culture that pretends not to know what a boy or a girl is. Who cares if they hate you? They hate nature itself. But even the people you love, maybe it's your parents, your in-laws, your siblings, maybe even your own spouse, these people do not have a greater claim upon you than the Lord does. Seek the Lord's approval before you seek theirs. David was willing to humble himself to honor the Lord, even if it meant being despised in the eyes of his own wife. But David understood that humbling himself before the Lord mattered more. So I call you today to set your mind on things above, the supremacy of God, His kingdom, His holiness, His absolute claim over you. Do not allow the cares of this world to eclipse what matters most. I want to draw your attention to one last feature in this text. You notice that David was dressed in a linen ephod. As I mentioned, that was unusual for a a king. This was actually a priestly garment. And a few chapters over, in chapter 8, verse 18, we're going to read that David's sons were priests. Now, David was descended from the tribe of Judah. That was not the priestly tribe in Israel. The law of Moses was very specific that it was the tribe of Levi that was able to have the priesthood, and that the sons of Levi, specifically the line of Aaron within Levi, were called to serve uh, in the holy place as priests before the Lord. And yet David, uh, without indicating any way that he or his sons usurped those things from the Levites, David is engaging in some priestly kinds of tasks, you might say. He's dressing like a priest. His sons were evidently doing something that was priestly. On what basis is David assuming these priestly prerogatives? Well, as it turns out, there are actually two priesthoods in the Bible. There is the Levitical priesthood outlined by the law of Moses, regulated by the law of Moses. But before the law was ever given, there was another priesthood. And we read about this in Genesis 14, where Abraham comes back from a battle with his men, and coming out to meet him is one Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek comes out bringing bread and wine where he distributes food to the troops and he pronounces a blessing over Abraham. Well, as it turns out, that city-state over which Melchizedek reigned, which we know there in Genesis 14 as Salem, is identical to the city we know as Jerusalem. David conquered this city And it seems that he understood that in conquering this city and in assuming the rule over this city, he inherited the same priesthood that Melchizedek had before him. David even does things in this text that remind us of Melchizedek. He distributes food to the people and he pronounces a blessing over them. If I'm reading this correctly, 
It helps throw new light on what we know David would say later in Psalm 110. When he said of the Messiah, the one to come who would be his own descendant, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Messiah, you, my descendant, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, would go through an extensive argument to show that because the descendant of David, Jesus Christ, is now interceding for us forever in the order of Melchizedek, our sins are forgiven, and we have life in a way that the Levitical priesthood never could have given. And that the Levitical priesthood has now passed away, but the priesthood that was both older and more enduring still stands And Jesus Christ intercedes for us at the right hand of God. Setting your mind on things above starts with setting your mind on Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, reigning and interceding for us as our high priest. Because of Christ, the sharp boundary that Uzzah crossed to his death is not there anymore. When Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two. And God said, all the boundaries are taken down for my people. Welcome home. Now, this is true for you if you are in Christ. You are welcome into the presence of God forever because of his intercession. If you are not in Christ today, then let the story of Uzzah crossing the boundary to his death be a warning to you that the wrath of God will come. It could come for you at any moment. There's nothing God owes you today. He does not even owe you your next breath But one thing is certain, you will stand before God. And you will either be accepted into his presence because you are in Christ, or you will be driven from his presence of blessing forever because you are still in your sins. You need a mediator. Call upon Christ if you have not done so. Call upon Him to deliver you from your sins by faith in Him. Receive eternal life, and it would be our joy to baptize you. If you are a believer who has professed your faith publicly and you're a member in good standing with a local church, we invite you to eat and drink this morning with us at the Lord's table as we renew our faith in our high priest once more. So if that's you, we invite you to come here in a moment. We're going to come row by row, as you'll see. Come by and just take one stack of two cups, and then we'll eat and drink together as we do so in faith. So would you take a moment of silence as we prepare to serve the bread and the cup?